challenges every preacher has is that I'm taking you from the 21st century and I'm time transporting you back initially to the first century. So as I set the dials on my time machine to the first third of century one, please come with me and let us try and situate our passage. So we're in the very, very early days of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, But we're in a rural area of the world which is right on the fringes of the Roman Empire and it's not very great or very busy. It's not like being in the city of London. It's far more remote than that. Um, And as we come here, we we find that we're right down in, in the grass weeds roots as we see what's going on. So the Lord Jesus Christ has just started to assemble um, this team, this team of, of 12 men. And if you read through chapter 1, you'd see it ends up with various disciples being called. There are about five of them assembled by the end of chapter 1. And the last one who gets called is this chap called Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, as you may recall, was having a nice time of reflection under a tree. And when Jesus sees Nathaniel coming towards him, he says of him, Look! An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how did you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's blown away. How could this man possibly know what I was doing? And he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then Jesus says this to Nathanael, and I think this is very helpful in setting the context of what we're looking at. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, one of those introductions Jesus uses literally in the Greek, amen, amen, it means this is something very important. You need to hear this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you, Nathanael, will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's slightly enigmatic, isn't it? Um, but it should propel us further back in our time machine, another, oh, I don't know, three or 4,000 years, to Jacob fleeing on his way to his uncle Laban. And he lays down to, to sleep that first night of, of running, and he puts a stone under his head for a pillow, and he dreams. And in his dream, he sees a ladder stretching from heaven to earth and the angels of God going up and down on it. And for Jacob, that was a very significant moment because in his dream, um, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, gives again to Jacob the promise that he first gave to Abraham. So for Jacob, it's a really profound moment. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to Nathaniel, you're going to experience something equally, if not more profound, and it won't be a ladder the angels are moving up and down on. It will be me. It'll be me. So with that slightly enigmatic but very striking setting of what's going on, John then moves immediately to Cana. 
I, I had the great privilege of going with my wife to visit um, Israel, and they took us to Cana, and they served us falafel everywhere you went. You got, or do you say falafel? You got the same stuff, and it's not my favorite dish. But on this occasion, something much more exciting was happening at Cana. Cana's very little, but there was a wedding. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and this group, proto-group of disciples, have been invited as well. I think that tells us, doesn't it, that almost certainly this was a almost a family affair, if not a family affair, a very close friends affair. And Mary, it seems, almost certainly involved in the catering. And because Mary's there and it's a family or close friends affair, Jesus is invited and they even invite his five friends. And the wedding's taking place now in the first century. Weddings generally lasted up to a week. And the whole weight of responsibility for weddings, fathers with daughters, um, fell on the bridegroom. So the bridegroom's family were expected to produce for a week all the entertainment, refreshments, hospitality for what would be a fairly significant group even in a small area like this. If you failed, it was not unknown to be taken to court. That's probably not what you'd do today, is it? If they ran out at the wedding, you'd probably reach into your pocket and pay up or whatever, but um, there are accounts of people being taken to court for failing to provide the food and wine before the, the week of celebration was up. And of course, in the UK, generally speaking, we're a truth-based culture, aren't we? If I tell you a lie and you discover it, I will be very ashamed. But in this culture, as we've traveled back now our 2,000 years, it was a shame-based culture. Truth didn't hold quite the same position, but your face, as it were, before others was what really counted. So Gideon goes to Edinburgh and finds this wonderful young Scottish lady. And to the whole delight of the congregation here, he decides that he would like to marry her. Amazingly, she says yes. And uh, they decide they're going to have the wedding here. You don't mind, do you, Gideon? Uh, good man. Good, okay. I didn't agree this beforehand, so I could be in trouble. So here it is, and we're all here, and there's going to be a huge bash afterwards with lots of lovely stuff to eat and drink and so on. And then the moment comes, and the caterer doesn't appear. And you can see Dick and Rebecca off in a corner. And it's so embarrassing. It's just awful. We're all wondering what to do. and Nip down to Burger King and get some things. Yeah. Well, if you can imagine that, only much worse, because their whole culture was deeply embedded in the shame and honor thing, that's what we're about to stumble into here. So Jesus is there with mum, his disciples, and a whole group of family and friends. And just before we get to the next step, can we just remark on that for a moment? The first thing I think we should note is that Jesus' ministry, and, and, and this is a real difficulty for us. I mean, look, 
This is institutionalized Christianity, isn't it? The building you're in is shrieking it at us, and I, I don't mean to be critical of that, but uh, the risk is it makes it very unreal or very distant. It's, it's like another planet. All this stuff is happening. I, I live where I live, and then on Sunday I come here, and, it, and it, it's this. Can I put the two together? Can I hold them together? Do they interact and integrate? That's difficult. But you see here that Jesus, amazing, marvelous, wonderful Jesus, Jesus who is so other, it's so hard for us to to grasp him, Jesus commences his ministry in the completely ordinary. So to apply that, what I'd say to you is please, 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 Never think that Jesus is disengaged from the ordinary and the mundane. He isn't. Jesus sees all. Jesus knows all. Your concerns, your hurts, your aspirations, your pains, your joys, your successes, those don't live in a different world to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees and knows you better than you know yourself. First thing. Second thing is, you've been very gracious this evening. When I've attempted to be humorous, you've you've humored me. But I have preached to congregations, and the only way you knew they hadn't died was because at the end they got up and rushed out. Now, if our religion, if our faith, if our relationship with Jesus Christ leaves us unchanged, unmoved, unengaged, something's gone profoundly wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ is here with these people. He's engaged with these people. And our faith must engage with him. Without it being dire and boring and grim. Christians, we've got the best news in the world. When our readers go to soldiers to tell them the gospel, they are offering them the greatest possession any of us can ever have. And if our hearts don't throb with joy, at least sometimes, then we haven't got it, have we? Christianity is not here to make us sad and boring and dull. It's not here to make us lunatics either. But it is here to give us joy. What is the chief end of man? Well, you all know the answer to that. And then perhaps just thirdly, very, very uh, tentatively, can I just say that Um, this wedding was running on wine, at least to some degree. Now, it does appear that wine in the first century was not the strength that we have it today. The wine you buy in shops today is probably three to ten times stronger, I'm told by the experts, than wine in the first century. Nevertheless, wine in the first century was alcoholic. 
Now, there may be very good reasons for being teetotal. I don't deny that at all. I also accept, and some of you will have a, a very painful first-hand experience of this, that alcoholism and the consequences of drinking can be horrendous. And I wouldn't want to underplay that for a moment. But what I would say is, if you want to argue for teetotalism, you're going to have to do it from grounds other than the direct teaching scripture. You're going to have to necessarily infer it somehow, which I think you can do. But anyway, the fact is, this is real wine, as we'll see in a moment. So with those rather more general thoughts, let us come to the passage more directly. Mary comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and she says, they have no wine. Disaster. They've run out. Mary's involved in the catering. She knows just before everybody else is going to find out. And who does she turn to? She turns to her son. Now, I can't prove to you, but I would suggest to you that it's very likely that Joseph nominally Jesus' dad, is dead. My grounds for saying that is he appears very early in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, but at any point in Jesus' public ministry, he doesn't appear at all. There's reference to Mary, there's reference to Jesus' brothers, but never to the father. The father figure is absent. Average life expectancy in first century Israel Um, you did really well to make 50. And if you think that Jesus is now very early 30s and that Joseph, when he married Mary, was probably around 20, it's quite likely he died. So for some time, it would appear, Jesus, the firstborn, has been head of the household. And so it's very natural for Mary to come to him. Those of you who have sons know what a joy that is. But it can also be a challenge at times, can't it? Um, Children are are a blessing and a heritage and a challenge and a means of grace and lots of other things. But Mary was unique, wasn't she? Unique in that her son, her firstborn son, really was extraordinary. And it would be natural for there to be the strongest bond between the widowed mum and her amazing, her wonderful, so wise, so gracious, so kind, so patient, so giving, firstborn son. So, of course, in this calamity, Mary turns to Jesus. They have no wine And then we have this quite striking response, don't we? Now, I think if you've got the NIV, it's dear woman. Is that right? In the Greek, it's gyna, which is the the common word for a woman. Um, In my ESV, it says, Jesus says to her, woman. But but that comes over rather harshly, doesn't it? I mean, if, if Dick and Rebecca, forgive me, I know them, they'll forgive me, I hope. If Dick and Rebecca were on their way out and you heard Dick turn to Rebecca and go, woman, you think, whoa, trouble. But that isn't quite what it carries. It is quite formal, but it's not distant. 
It's very difficult to come up with an English equivalent. Um, Carson suggests that the Southern American MAM might be roughly equivalent, um, maybe. So we, we don't quite do this in, in English, and dear woman is probably a good translation. Jesus says to her, dear woman, what does this have to do with me? And again, that's a difficult translation because it's a Greek idiom, literally, um, what you and me, uh, which is a bit difficult to translate, isn't it? But certainly carries the idea that we, we don't have something in common here. Why are you troubling with this, me with this? This isn't relevant to me. Dear woman, what does this have to do with me? And then this statement, the first time in John's gospel that this phrase has been used, my hour has not yet come. Unquestionably, there is an element of rebuke in Jesus' response. It's not a harsh rebuke, but it is a bit of a pushback. Mary comes to Jesus with the need and Jesus pretty firmly pushes back. And he gives the reason, my hour has not yet come. How do we understand that? Let me suggest to you that we could understand it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ for 30 years, more or less, has been a son. He's been quite an unusual son at times. At age 12, he's run away and spent some time in the temple and so on. But he's taken over the family business. He has been the leader in the home. He has been an extraordinarily lovely, wonderful son. But something has profoundly changed. Just a few weeks previously, Jesus transitioned from 30 years of domestic preparation to what would become about three years of public ministry. He changed from being a member of a family with all the responsibilities that that entailed to being the Messiah. Unique responsibilities, unique mission. And it means that relationships must change. And effectively, the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing a line in the sand to say to his mother, Mother, you need to understand now that my meat and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me. I have a mission and a purpose which will not be derailed by any other injects however painful that will be to me or those who are most close to me. And you will know that Jesus at one time told his disciples that if you're not prepared to hate, which was a a Semitism for rank lower, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and so on, more than me, you are not worthy of me. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is something in life For him, which is so much more important than all that has existed up to this point, that now it must all change. And he refers to that as 
his hour. Now when John uses it here, he uses it enigmatically to draw us in. What is this hour? What is the Lord Jesus referring to? But as you read through John's gospel, it becomes more and more clear that the hour refers basically to what we would call the Easter weekend. Jesus' final humiliation, his horrendous treatment at the hands of the Gentile occupying forces, his murder, and his glorious resurrection. And that, Jesus uses this rubric of hour to cover. Praise God. Praise God that the Lord Jesus Christ stuck to the mission the Father had given him to do. He had to set his face like a flint in the end to go to Jerusalem. He staggered in the garden. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And here at the very beginning of his ministry, he makes it crystal clear to his mother that things have profoundly changed. Now, apart from praising the father for the faithfulness of his son and the extraordinary wisdom and glory of this program of redemption, that God designed before the creation of the world, how else might we apply this to ourselves? Well, please, I don't wish to be at all irreverent, so please don't misunderstand me. Jesus had an hour. The hour would come when he would stand before the Father and he would answer to the Father. And extraordinarily, he would answer for sins not his own, but for the sins of those who had, were, and would put their trust in him. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ's death in the place of sinners. But by extension, may I say to you all, brothers and sisters, friends, people here this evening, you also have an hour that is coming. And it's similar in this regard. At Jesus' hour, he stood to answer to the Father. And in your hour, you will do exactly the same. One of our readers, um, scripture readers in Sazra, that's what we call our evangelists. We don't dare use the term evangelist because that would scare the horses. Scripture reader is very good. One of our scripture readers met with a group of young soldiers from one of the rifle battalions that were going out to Afghanistan. During the height of the conflict in Afghanistan, um, we were taking casualties at such a race. Um, I believe it was three rifles, um, had a dreadful tour out there. Um, they lost 5% of their strength in one tour. It meant that those going through training, rather than going through training and then having a period where they could settle in this country, they went straight from training out to theater. And our reader had the opportunity on a Friday to meet with a group of five young men who had just completed their basic military training, infantryman training, and they were being flown out from Bryce Norton that evening. And while they were waiting for their flight, our script reader sat with them and he said, guys, I want to tell you the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because you must know before you reach theatre. So that Friday evening, he shared the gospel with these five young men. He went home. They went to Afghanistan. Wednesday the next week, he went into the welfare officer's office on the unit for three rifles. And at the top of the casualty list, killed, was one of those five young men. He'd flown out. He'd done his very brief induction He'd been put on gate duty duty at their unit and a suicide bomber had come and blown himself and this soldier into eternity. Now for that young man, his hour had come. By God's grace, he'd heard the truth before he stood before God. I don't know what he did with it, but at least he heard. For every one of us, the truth is the same. You will stand before the Father at your hour. And either Jesus will have answered for you or you will answer for yourself. God forbid, God forbid that any of us here in our hour should have to answer for ourselves because we'll be lost, be lost. Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. There are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these aren't pottery vessels, they're big stone vessels. And you'll be aware that in first century Israel there wasn't much of a a sort of industry to help you create nice things out of stone. It was jolly hard work. So these were big containers roughly hewn, and they held a lot. Very approximately, each of these six stone water jars held the equivalent of a hundred bottles. And they used them with, to fill with water. The reason they used stone was because stone was considered more impervious to impurities than pottery. And given that these were there so that you could draw water out of them and cleanse yourself, it was very important that purification was maintained that there was no contamination so as it happens where they're having this wedding there are these six stone water jars Jesus says to the servants fill them with water and they fill them to the top to the brim and then he says draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast so they did so and then you know the story the master of the feast says this is fantastic I mean, I don't drink wine. I have absolutely no idea what the difference between a good and a bad wine is. I couldn't detect it at all. It all tastes very odd to me. But he says, this is fantastic wine. You've done the unusual. Normally you serve the best wine at the beginning, and then when everybody's a little bit tipsy, you bring out the less good wine, and you can get away with it. But you've done it the other way around. It's amazing. Only Jesus and the servants... And I guess his mum knew what had happened. I think this is just marvellous. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Because what Jesus does is very quietly, he saves the profound embarrassment of the wedding going wrong. 
in the news uh, a while ago, a few years ago, there was a terrible, terrible story about a lady who was marrying a, a biker. They were both very keen bikers. And so she was driven to the wedding in her wedding dress on one of these three-wheeled motorbikes. Forgive me, I don't you know. Trike is obviously not the right word, but uh, whatever. So she was sat at the back, and the guy was driving it. And uh, her dress became caught in the drive mechanism. The dress was pulled into the drive mechanism, and her legs were pulled into the drive mechanism. And so she screamed and so on. The guy came to a halt. They had to call an ambulance. It was an emergency job. They had to um, uh, remove her legs. Um, so the wedding that should have been this moment of tremendous joy and happiness, for them it turned into an unmitigated disaster. It was just awful. She said she looked down and the white of her dress was just red with her own blood. She did survive, and in due course she did marry, but she was now legless. Um, so you know she married as, as a disabled person. Um, it's not quite that catastrophic, but you wouldn't want to have your wedding, would you, remembered for the fact that at the vital moment all the wine ran out and everybody sued you in the courts or your parents or whatever and it all went horribly wrong. So Jesus just gently, kindly, graciously intervenes to sort it out. And he provides wonderful wine in great quantities, roughly six or seven hundred bottles of it. Now, Jesus' power, I think, is... I mean, Jesus' power is, is just astounding, isn't it? It's Jesus who sustains all that he has made. It's Jesus that everything finds its end in. I, I mean, it, it's beyond my ability to comprehend. But the way that he uses his power, I think, is just so fantastic. It's so compassionate and gracious. It's so merciful. So he intervenes here to save the shame that this family would have attracted. And if you're a Christian here this evening, is it not your testimony that Jesus has been so gracious to you? Hasn't he intervened to save your profound shame? And he's done it in such a gracious way. See, it could have been that God said, when somebody professes faith in me, they're required to come out to the front of the church and starting from the very first day they can remember, they must go through their life and confess every sinful deed, every sinful thought, every act that's been unworthy, every time they've done something that has dishonored me. The list would go on and on and on. It would be awful. But praise God, it's no good coming and telling me your sins. I'm not a priest. I can't do anything with them. You tell them to Jesus. And Jesus deals with them all. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our sin from us. The way that God forgives, the way that Jesus deals with sinners, the way he brings us into his kingdom 
is a way of grace and gentleness and peace and mercy. So much power. Power to forgive. Power to cleanse. Power to restore. Power to make the barren years fruitful. Brought in peace and grace and mercy. Praise God we have such a gracious Saviour. Verse 11, this, the first of the signs up to the end of chapter 12. John is, is, he's devised his gospel around seven signs culminating with raising from the dead to demonstrate the truth about Jesus Christ and his power and authority. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and displayed, manifested his glory. Why did John write his gospel? Happily tells us. It's so we may believe in Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus display these signs? Why did he do this amazingly kind but also very powerful act at Cana in Galilee? So that they might believe. Jesus did this at Cana in Galilee. He displayed his glory in a very, very muted way. And his disciples believed in him. My final application. So please listen to this. We've traveled in our time machine. And however inadequately, I've tried to draw you in to this wedding. I imagine you've all been to weddings. You know what a wedding is like, pretty much. Many of you have attended your own wedding as well as others. And there are many blessings in weddings. But at this wedding, there was a profound problem which Jesus solved in a display of his God power. And when the disciples saw it, they believed. I challenge you. Here is what happened. This evening we've been. We've seen. And now the question is, have we believed? As we start the week, we'll believe many things. Some will be helpful to us, others will be very hurtful to us. Some will prove to be true, others will prove to be lies. Here is the one object of faith or belief that makes a difference not just for this week, but for eternity. This is just one of the signs Jesus did. I urge you, I plead with you. See what Jesus does and believe. Let's pray.